0: We're
1: doing a podcast. Stick
0: us on City on the edge.
1: City on the edge. City on the edge.
0: City on the edge. City on the edge.
1: City on the edge. City on the edge.
0: City on the edge. City on the edge. City on the edge. City on the edge. City on the Edge podcast.
1: It's the City, no, not the Edge podcast. Okay. With Ty and
0: Mike. <laughs> From Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay.
1: All right, this is City on the Edge, a profile of one American city, Albuquerque, New Mexico, told through stories, history, and folklore. With your hosts, Mike Smith and Ty Bannerman.
0: Cast City on the Edge. I want to thank everyone who, uh, who downloaded it last time, even though we didn't have iTunes support or anything very official. You guys went to our SoundCloud account, and you clicked the button, and you listened to it, and I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. As well, of 40. now, <laughs> actually, there was like a hundred something. Oh, so. really? Oh,
1: great. Okay, good.
0: Now, however, mm-hmm. you can go to iTunes or PodBay or any of your favorite um, podcast downloading tools and get a copy of City on the Edge. Uh, In fact, you may have done that for this very episode. You may have. This week, uh, Mike has a piece about the murder of Carl Taylor Mm -hmm. in 1936 in the East Mountain. It's true. Can I say a few words about that? Yeah, this, this piece ended up being really long, so
1: we've split it into two parts this episode. I mean, we talked about it a lot. I, the, the piece I had written about it was very long and, and took up a lot of space in itself, and then we had a lot to say about it. But it's about this journalist, Carl Taylor, who in 1936 was writing about the Penitentes, this very usually sensationally covered um, uh, Catholic sect, unofficial Catholic sect, that whips them, whips themselves, and hangs themselves on crosses, and so so <laughs> forth. And when the jur- this journalist was murdered, they were the primary suspects for it. So, yeah. this, this at least for a while. Uh, so this story is about that murder. And yeah.
0: it's 1936. So this yeah. is a, a time when New Mexico has just uh, only recently become a state. Right. So it's kind of like when the rest of America is sort of. Uh, uh, learning about New Mexico and maybe being a little bit freaked out about mm-hmm. what they're learning about and I think Carl Taylor was sort of a emblematic of that
1: it's true yeah and Ty loves the word emblematic I do <laughs> uh, the uh, we are sitting on the, next to the freeway right now and there's cars zooming by the, uh, the sound quality will pick up after we're not doing that
0: <laughs> so hang in there okay so let's go ahead and get Please. right into the uh, into the recorded piece do you want to say anything else about it before we start
1: Just that if people really think they're good people, they'll listen to this. (laughs) All right. I think so, yes. All right. It was cold up in the mountains, and there was snow on the ground. It was February 1936. A roughly paved road wound from the mountain's southern end, north and up into high wooded desert villages. The road passed occasional clusters of rock and adobe homes, some with names, and met with a the then unnamed dirt road that veered west into sloping hills. This unnamed road lay just south of a lodge and chain of cabins, Casaloma Mountain Lodge, and cut a path between poplars and cottonwoods, hills and arroyos, junipers and elms. On the right, the north, several hundred yards up the nameless road stood two small buildings one made of mud, and a smaller one just in front of it made of wood with a stone chimney. It was just around 8 o'clock and dark out. Lights shone from a window of the wooden cabin, smoke climbed from its chimney, and the scene appeared quiet and tranquil. Then, without warning, a gunshot exploded over the hills, muffled only slightly by the little cabin's walls. A long moment passed, another shot sounded, and another, and the night rang with silence. The cabin's back door soon opened, a dark figure slipped out, and its footsteps crunched in the snow as it hurried into shadows. These cold desert mountains were the Sandia mountain range, a high tilted shelf of gray granite covered by dirt and trees and towns, cut by creeks and trails and roads, and set just east of the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico. The roughly paved road winding through these mountains was U.S. Highway 10, a narrow, laneless road that ran from its junction with Route 66 at the mountain's southern end north for almost the entire length of the range, and then beyond to Santa Fe. The clusters of homes along the road were the Spanish farming and woodcutting towns of Tejeras, Ranchitos, and San Antonio, and nestled among them were the former Well Country Camp, Casa Loma, and Cedar Crest, resorts established and populated by the mostly Anglo victims of a worldwide tuberculosis epidemic, all hoping to find health in the mountainous climate. The cabin with the smoking chimney set back on the side road was known by local kids as Uncle Tom's Cabin, after the tubercular Indiana man, Tom Hatton, who had built it around 1924. The cabin sat just inside the northern perimeter of the town of San Antonio, about 20 miles from downtown Albuquerque. Hatton had lived in the cabin for about a decade, but had subsequently moved down into the city and had begun renting his cabin in September of 1935 to a writer named Carl Taylor, who was not the half-glimpsed figure that ran from the cabin's back door on the night of February 5, 1936. That dusky figure was only 15 years old, almost 16, and lived in the adobe house just above the cabin with his family. His name was Modesto Trujillo. In Spanish, since his English was poor and he was with his family, he told his mother what had just happened in the cabin. Trujillo had been employed for some months there by the writer Carl Taylor, who rented that cabin. Taylor had lived for years in the Philippines, grown accustomed to having low-wage servants, and while in New Mexico, had hired Trujillo to do his chores and run his errands. That evening, Taylor was planning to go out, and Trujillo had borrowed a wash tub from his mother next door, filled the tub with water, and begun preparing a bath for Taylor. Evidently enjoying his book, Taylor had not yet undressed and begun bathing. Trujillo was waiting for him to do so so that he could return the washtub to his mother and go home. According to what Trujillo told his mother, Taylor was sitting in a chair near the fireplace, reading, while Trujillo was sitting in another chair elsewhere in the room, also reading. It was then Trujillo said that the front door swung open and two men strode in, one behind the other. The men's faces were hidden behind white rags. The man in front wore a cap and a dark sweater and pointed a gun at Taylor. Taylor leapt up from his chair, gaping at the open door and the men it framed. Trujillo began backing away toward the rear of the cabin. The masked men in front fired at Taylor's skull, Trujillo said, and before Taylor could even fall to the ground, Trujillo escaped into the kitchen. As a second shot sounded behind him, Trujillo ran out the kitchen door and headed home. In reply to questions asked by an Albuquerque Journal reporter later that night, Trujillo said, I went home and told my mama what happened. My mama got scared. She cried. Trujillo's story horrified his mother and she insisted he run to tell it to Faustin Chavez, the local justice of the peace. Within minutes, Trujillo was outside Chavez's door, yelping about the night's events in Spanish. Chavez stepped outside and asked Trujillo, what's the matter here? My master, he's been shot. Two masked men broke into the cabin. They had guns. They fired at him. Come, come quickly, Trujillo said. Chavez pulled on a coat, gathered a small group of neighbors together, and ran down the road, leading to the cabin, Trujillo gesturing wildly as he led them through the darkness. Once at the cabin, the group found the front door was blocked by something soft and heavy and wouldn't open more than a foot. Chavez, peering through the gap between the door and the doorframe, glimpsed a body slumped against the wooden door, the motionless body of Carl Taylor. Chavez pushed hard against the door. Taylor's slack and lifeless body slid face, face down along the floorboards, and Chavez stepped into the silent cabin. A quick glance at the body and its surroundings revealed that no one else was in the tightly kept front room and that Taylor's blood was drying in a puddle on the cabin floor. Chavez observed that Taylor appeared to have been shot twice in the head and evidently beaten with a blunt instrument, perhaps a club or a gun butt. He checked Taylor's pulse to confirm he was dead, turned to the neighbors gathered in the doorway and said, yes, he's dead, all right, and it's murder. We'd better get the sheriff up here right away. By the time Sheriff Rosando, Ross Salazar, arrived at the scene two hours later, the night had grown even darker. Salazar had driven up into the mountains from Albuquerque, accompanied by several New Mexico state troopers sheriff's deputies, and an investigator from the Bernalillo County District Attorney's Office. Salazar ordered the cabin closed to the public and began to inspect the crime scene. Salazar concluded that Taylor had been sitting in a chair at his table and reading, In Barbary, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and the Sahara, a 1926 book by adventure writer E. Alexander Powell. A tabletop lamp blazed beside him to his right, and a bowl of popcorn sat in front of him. As Taylor read, a shot rang out. A bullet pierced the back of his neck, passed through his brain, and exited the right side of his forehead. It was apparently then that he dropped his book and fell from his chair onto the floor, landing partially in the cabin's fireplace, which had a fire burning in it. He must have lain there for some time, unable to move, because his right leg had been badly burned. Then the killer had raised the small caliber gun again. A barely conscious Taylor had managed to raise his right arm in an attempt to deflect the bullet, and the killer had shot him again. This shot, fired at almost point-blank range, left powder burns down Taylor's raised right arm, hit the center of his forehead, and expelled much of Taylor's brain onto the floor. Following this fatal shot, Taylor's body had been dragged out of the fireplace and over to the front door, leaving visible marks and a slick of blood across the wooden floorboards. The scene strewn across the silent cabin's interior suggested that the murder had been sudden, callous, and brutal. An unused shotgun leaned in a corner of the cabin's front room as if Taylor had been unable to defend himself before the first shot was fired, or been unaware that he needed to. A police-style blackjack, a lead weight wrapped in leather with a strap on one end, hung from a hook above the fireplace, and certain of Taylor's... Less distinct injuries caused Salazar to wonder if the blackjack may have been that tool used to beat Taylor about the head, perhaps to knock him out before shooting him. And from the table to the fireplace to the front door, the blood and physical remains of Carl Taylor were everywhere. After Salazar and his officers concluded Wednesday night's investigation of the cabin, Taylor's body was taken in a hearse to the Blakemore Exter Mortuary in Albuquerque. Salazar secured the cabin, declared it off-limits to anyone but lawmen, and forbade even Tom Hatton, the cabin's owner, from coming near. Less than a mile up the road from Taylor's cabin was the Cedar Crest Trading Post, a small, locally-owned store run by Carl Webb. Entrepreneur, recovered tuberculosis patient, and the founder of the adjacent Cedar Crest Resort, Webb would normally have closed the establishment earlier in the evening and shut off the power to the entire resort property at 11 p.m. That night, however, Webb's store was ablaze with light. Numerous cars were parked across the snowy ground, and reporters and policemen filled the store where they had come to interview Taylor's friends and neighbors. Reporters were there from the Albuquerque Tribune and the Albuquerque Journal and were interested in discovering what the crime's motives might be. Included among the crowd at Cedar Crest that night was Conrad Richter, an acclaimed American novelist and a good friend of Taylor. Tom Hatton had called Richter with the shocking news of Taylor's death earlier that evening, and the two had ridden together from Albuquerque in Richter's car, stopping briefly at the blockaded cabin before rolling into Cedar Crest around 11 o'clock. Given that Hatton owned the cabin Taylor was killed in and had rented to Taylor since the previous September, and that Richter had been a friend and writing mentor to Taylor since the early 1930s, the journalists on the scene were especially interested in interviewing them. Taylor's friends were candid with the reporters about their theories on possible motives and suspects, and talked openly about their deceased friend, his work, his travels, and his life.
0: Okay, so that was, uh, that was part one. We've got a, a grisly murder. It is. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I would have described
1: that so sensationally if I wrote that today. I wrote this a little while ago. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of well, it. Well,
0: certainly, but, uh, uh, yeah. evocative. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's gross though. It's, just, it's definitely gross. Yeah. Okay, but let's, uh, uh, yeah. let's let's maybe take a moment here yeah. and um, kind of get the scene in our minds of uh, this is taking place in in New Mexico in 1936 in a little town outside of Albuquerque, mm-hmm. right? On the other side of the Sandia Mountains, called San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, it's more popularly known as Cedar Crest. Yeah, the
1: Cedar Crest uh, mailing address seems to have subsumed that whole area, right. Really, in a way.
0: But back in these days, it was actually kind of more of a a bunch of little villages yeah. along Highway 14 exactly. going north. Yeah. Um,
1: and San Antonio was actually a really important town up there. It was it was when the mountains were resettled in 1819. San Antonio was the central town, and all the other towns up there: Teharis, uh, San Antonito. Uh, Canyon Sito—they were all satellite communities okay. of
0: San Antonio. This was—it was, a, it was so so San Antonio important. is kind of like the middle, yeah, yeah. the hub of yeah. that little region of, yeah. of villages. Yeah. And this, okay, so 1936, New Mexico had only been a state for 20 years, mm-hmm. and uh, in 1912, wait, am I getting that right? That would be 20 years, yeah. Like so uh, 1912 is when it officially became a state. It had been a territory of the United States since uh, what the 18. 18- 3000 BC, <laughs> <laughs> a, a territory of the United States officially oh, is oh, what I mean. Okay. You know. oh, I um, okay. So, since so around the, the mid oh, yeah, 19th right. century, and prior to that, it, it was a uh, a colony of uh, of the Spanish Crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, then became Mexico and so forth. And so, there was kind of a. Uh, th- this is really like when when the the first white americans were really building it up would you say is that
1: yeah a little bit yeah yeah you certainly changing the nature of it i mean
0: it's because the railroad has just come in as yeah. of like 1880 yeah yeah and uh that's like brought a lot of people from mm-hmm. the east from the rest of america out here yeah and uh,
1: a lot of people came out because of tuberculosis exactly
0: yeah, and um yeah. in fact that was like kind of new mexico's claim to fame at the time mm-hmm. was a place to come and the heal part of the well country heal from your tuberculosis, Uh, Albuquerque in particular was known for that. Mm -hmm. And then among these little villages on North 14, San Antonio and so forth, there are these wellness camps that are springing up, like Mm -hmm. Casa Loma. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, Casa Loma, the, uh, the Cedar Crest Resort, the Well Country Camp. Uh, so, so many up in the mountains, little unnamed ones that have forgotten, been forgotten now, you know, Santa Fe had some famous ones, Albuquerque had famous ones. Every Albuquerque hospital was a TB right. sanitarium, of course, you know this. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: um, these little places in the mountains were kind of like a more rustic mm-hmm. tuberculosis yeah. healing Right, center. right, right. So there's a lot of people coming from the east out to New Mexico because of this reason. Mm-hmm. And that's leading to maybe a, a clash of cultures? Mm-hmm. Oh, a little bit, would yeah. Would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think up in this area, in the Sandias, people tended to get along generally. But yeah, I mean, you know, of course there's always going to be okay. some friction, you know, about, about that. You know? Sure. Yeah.
0: Do you want to talk about Carl Taylor? What uh, um, we know about him, what brought him out here to write about New Mexico?
1: I do, yeah. The next uh, segment I'm going to read really okay. goes, goes into him more. Um, I don't know, what, else, what other setups should we talk about? Should we... Ah, <sighs> um. So, and, and do you have any questions about what we've read so far? Like about,
0: yeah. Okay. So, yeah. do we know about uh, the man from Indiana who owns the cabin? What, um, what brought him
1: out? Oh, that's a good question. I think he came out because of tuberculosis, or his wife had had tuberculosis, something like that. Okay. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a. Uh,
0: and this cabin is yeah. literally. A hundred feet away from Modesto Trujillo's house. Mm-hmm. Something like it's that. It's just
1: right in front of it. Yeah. Uh, Mike yeah. and
0: I went up there mm-hmm. uh, last weekend to kind of walked around the um, the remains of these sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, you like, can walk from Carl Taylor's cabin right over to where Modesto Trujillo... Mm-hmm. Well,
1: there's a fence between them, but yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so shall we... Uh, all right. So Carl Taylor has been gunned down. Yeah, by someone. Modesto Trujillo has a story. Mm-hmm about it, but it's not a little weird. adding up. Yeah, basically. it's a little strange. Right, yeah. so.
1: Like, how did these people come in the front door and leave from the front door if his body is slumped against the door? It's a little fishy. Yeah. Okay, yeah,
0: you know. um, okay. okay. let's there. go ahead and uh, jump back in. Rested on my shoulder Saying these words to me Life you once knew is over
1: Carl Taylor was born around 1903, in the tiny southern Indiana community of Milltown, where he also grew up. His parents both died while Carl and his only brother, Lon, were still young, and as a young adult, Taylor moved a short distance north to Danville, Indiana, where he graduated after two years from Central Normal College, apparently as an English major. In 1924, at the age of 21, he moved to New Mexico, as a surprising number of Indiana residents did, where he attended the University of New Mexico, UNM, in Albuquerque. While there, he met a woman and married her, but their marriage quickly became unhappy. Around 1926, he and his wife separated. In 1929, Taylor graduated from the University of New Mexico's College of Arts and Sciences with a major in English and a minor in education, and for a very brief period taught English there. Taylor and his wife officially divorced around 1933 after a seven-year-long separation. Taylor's strengths, evidently, had never lain among those implicitly desired by the society he lived in. His wanderlust and innate curiosity drove him out into the world perhaps contributing to the failure of his marriage, and his dreams of being a successful writer likely distracted from his duties as a teacher. Taylor had traveled as an experienced, hungry vagabond all across the country and all around the world. Beginning in June of 1929, he taught English for a year at the University of the Philippines in Manila, but left that job after the university's administration accused him of neglecting his duties as an advisor for the University Journal. He had subsequently traveled through the islands of the Philippines, then an American protectorate, and also through Asia, And during those travels, he wrote numerous articles for various British and American magazines, including Cosmopolitan, New Republic, Today, and The Wide World, a popular magazine of sensationalized nonfiction. But Taylor always returned to New Mexico. In 1933, he lived in the Sandia Mountains in a small rented cabin in the Well Country Ranch, a mountainside guest ranch that had once been a tuberculosis resort, just about a mile south of the cabin he would one day die in. While at the Well Country Ranch, he worked on a book, Odyssey of the Islands, about his adventures in the Philippines. To Taylor's notable satisfaction, Charles Scribner's sons, publishers of such important authors as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and Thomas Wolfe, would soon agree to publish it, but Taylor would never live to see it in print. Taylor had launched his career by writing feature articles for the Albuquerque Tribune, so no doubt some of the reporters in Cedar Crest that night had known him and been personally affected by his death. At the Tribune, Taylor had written under the pseudonym of Carl N. Trapp, and at one point had hoboed his way on very little money to Los Angeles while recording his adventures in a series of articles. Sometime around 1934, approximately two years before his death, Taylor took a government job in Gallup, New Mexico, working with the new and experimental transient relief program, which used federal funds to help local governments deal with the sudden crush of depression-affected families heading west to California. Taylor made at least one especially close friend there, Mrs. Ruth Finley, a schoolteacher, and worked at that job for about a year before leaving once more for the Philippines. Taylor was especially fascinated by primitive cultures and practices. During one of his trips to the Philippines, Taylor had driven out into the countryside of the province of Pampanga to witness the Easter rites of the Brotherhood of Flagellants. Mm -hmm. This Catholic sect of Filipino natives believed, because of the influence of Spanish conquistadors centuries before, that they could absolve their sins by imitating the passion of Jesus Christ through such acts as whipping themselves with bamboo, cutting their backs with broken glass, throwing themselves against the ground, and staggering for miles beneath heavy crosses. Taylor devoted an entire chapter of Odyssey of the Islands to the Brotherhood of Flagellantes. He wrote, I believe I am correct in stating that the only place outside of the Philippines where any similar rites, or orgies if one sees them from that perspective, are performed today is in certain remote districts in New Mexico. By 1935, just such a remote New Mexico district was once again Taylor's home. Taylor returned to the Sandias to research a feature he had been assigned to write for the popular Today magazine a weekly periodical that would merge with News-Week magazine two years later. Taylor's assignment, very likely one that he had suggested to his editor, was to write about New Mexico's Cofradia de Nuestro Padre Jesus Nazareno, or the confraternity of our father Jesus of Nazareth. More commonly known as the Penitentes, La Cofradia was a flagellant brotherhood very similar to the Brotherhood of Flagellantes in the Philippines. Although the origins of New Mexico's penitentes are believed to trace all the way back to certain medieval Italian Catholic sects of the 13th century, the penitentes' beliefs and rites had more recently evolved from practices brought to New Mexico from Catholic Spain and Mexico in the late 18th century. And by the early 1900s, the sect had become an important part of life in Hispanic New Mexico. The lack of regular Catholic priests in many of New Mexico's more isolated towns, the need of these remote locales to have some sort of formal worship structure, and the desire of many rural Hispanics not to be assimilated into the culture and politics of a newly American New Mexico greatly stimulated the growth of the Penitente Brotherhood. The Penitentes believed ardently in making amends for their sins through physical suffering, suffering which included whipping oneself with whips, throwing oneself onto beds of cactus, wearing and dragging heavy chains along the ground, wearing a crown of thorns, and even, if chosen for the honor, hanging upon a wooden cross. In 1935 and 1936, in San Antonio, New Mexico, The penitentes were thriving. Between 5,000 and 10,000 penitentes lived in the southwest, and some of those lived in San Antonio. A low, grassy hillside in the town's northern end was the site of one of the area's only marathas, the exclusive adobe chapels in which the Brotherhood met to worship at an altar on which at least one human skull sat, and from which they began their religious processions. Many of the local farmers and woodcutters were members of the Brotherhood, and even the town's name, San Antonio, honored St. Anthony of Padua, one of the earliest known practitioners of self-inflicted physical suffering for the sake of personal salvation. Local Anglos still tell the stories of groups of San Antonio penitentes swarming down onto Highway 10 after drinking too much, surrounding cars and pounding on the doors and windows as the vehicle's terrified passengers rolled slowly through the crowd. Such stories may be exaggerated or even completely fictitious, but they are indicative of the fear and awe with which people regarded the penitentes. Even other Hispanic Catholics went out of their way to avoid the rites of the Brotherhood, knowing that anyone caught spying on the penitentes would almost certainly be whipped or beaten. Taylor himself had told of a writer a number of years before who had allegedly been shot twice by penitentes for publishing a photograph of a penitente crucifixion. In March of 1932, two young men in Trinidad, Colorado, had wandered into a cemetery where a group of penitentes was chanting and whipping themselves, and the two observers were whipped and kicked and beaten until they managed to escape. And in 1934, the filmmaker Roland Price was discovered while filming the secret rites of the Penitentes of Truches, New Mexico, and shot multiple times as he made his escape. The Penitentes valued their privacy. Taylor was undoubtedly aware of such incidents from his time at the nearby Well Country Ranch circa 1933, and had apparently been waiting since then to write on the subject. He had acquired most of his information on the Penitentes, according to artist and friend Carl Redden, through Professor Arthur L. Campa of UNM's Department of Modern Languages, but he had conducted his own research as well. Circumstantial evidence suggests that, in addition to returning to New Mexico to write, he may have also been acting as a sort of government-sponsored watchdog sent back to the Sandias to help keep an eye on New Mexico's penitentes with the ultimate objective of helping the penitentes assimilate faster into an increasingly Anglo-New Mexico culture. Calvarios, hills topped with crosses marking the way for penitente processions, lay along the unnamed road Taylor lived on, putting Taylor in the perfect place to witness their processions. The Penitente Murata stood just north along the highway within walking distance of Taylor's cabin, and Taylor had evidently managed to befriend or bribe or deceive San Antonio's Penitentes because on February 4, 1936, the day before his murder, he had reportedly been granted entrance to the exclusive Penitente Murata with Modesto Trujillo, his houseboy, and with the Hermano Mayor, or spiritual leader of the local Penitentes, and he had brought a camera. To Roy D.S. Horn, his literary agent, Taylor wrote, I have just finished taking about two dozen pictures of a penitente marada, parentheses, temple of worship, and various pictures of crosses in the hills. If I haven't forgotten how to use a camera, some of these should be excellent. Last night I made three flashlight exposures within a marada, something I don't think has ever been done before. I'm praying over those, for there will never be a chance to repeat the performance. As the Albuquerque Journal dryly reported on February 6, 1936, Penitentes ordinarily do not permit uninitiates to enter their miradas, much less to photograph them. Taylor was well aware of the chances he was taking, because shortly before his murder he had taken some unusual precautions. He had visited an Albuquerque clothing store where a friend of his, C.H. Spitzmesser, worked and told him that he feared he would be killed either for his money or for what he was writing about. Taylor gave Spitzmesser the serial numbers of the traveler's checks he carried, just in case something were to happen to him. He also wrote out a note to keep with his belongings. It read, Memorandum, in case of death, accident, or serious illness, notify my brother Lon Taylor, and gave his brother's telegraph address. As evidenced by the shotgun and blackjack kept in his cabin, Taylor also believed he needed to be armed. His potentially revelatory article on the penitentes, which he had finished only the day before, the precautions he had taken for his safety, the photographs he had allegedly taken within the morada, the general reputation of the penitentes as secretive and violent, and the masked penitente-like faces of Taylor's assailants as described by Trujillo, all combined to suggest to his friends the perfect and most perfectly sensational motive for the crime. The penitentes forbade any unbeliever to enter their chapels, wrote Conrad Richter in an unpublished 1947 account. The fact that Carl had profaned the chapel for pictures to illustrate one of his articles seemed to us to be the only possible explanation. The reporters wrote up the story from that angle. Richter, along with Dr. George St. Clair, the head of UNM's English Department, and Taylor's one-time referral to the University of the Philippines, urged the sheriff and his men to search the cabin for Taylor's article, confident it could provide clues if it was there, or a strong motive if it was not. Joseph Joe Buchanan, owner of the gas station directly across from San Antonio's Morada, was also at the Cedar Crest store that night. Just before midnight, Buchanan mentioned to the sheriff that a local boy named Cresceniano Gutierrez had recently pawned a gun for $2 to a man named Eugene Gonzalez at an Albuquerque pawn shop. Buchanan said that Gutierrez had reclaimed the gun fewer than two months before, before Christmas of 1935, and, Buchanan added, he believed the boy was one of San Antonio's penitentes. Salazar assured Buchanan he would follow up on that lead the next morning, and the evening wound down soon thereafter. That night, Taylor had planned to bathe, dress up, and join some friends at Albuquerque's Satiric Artists' Ball, an annual event of the still extant New Mexico Art League, but those friends attended without him. The event was a costumed one, and many of the attendees, having just heard of Taylor's death and suspected motives for it, arrived sardonically dressed in the robes and masks of penitentes.
0: No, I never will take it. The green hills of California. The plot thickens. Yeah. Uh, Suddenly we've got this uh, this very mysterious order. And kind of uh, listening to it, it it sounds a little frightening, right? Mm -hmm. The penitentes are now on the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you say, they're kind of a product of... uh, the The Catholic Church pulling out of New Mexico following the uh, the Mexican Revolution, I believe. Oh, is that true? Well, I was reading in a Marta oh. Weigel's "Brothers of Light, Brothers of Blood." and oh, yeah. Basically, like what happened is, when Spain ceded Mexico, right. they pulled out every. Um, Every priest, every every priest ah, of Spanish descent huh. from places like New Mexico. Oh, interesting. And so all these people in, in New Mexico who were completely dependent on the spiritual life of the Catholic Church okay. uh, didn't have that anymore.
1: Interesting.
0: And uh, from what I understand, like, basically, they were... Um, there were people there were no longer people to perform marriages there were no longer people able to perform funeral rites or to give last sacrament that sort of thing um, which, a, yeah which is huge I mean that's like if the government just stopped working right you know right, for right. us right, right. Um, so suddenly there wasn't anything like that and this is you know except you know if if, if our government stopped working it would be a huge inconvenience mm-hmm. but like you and I would not worry about our mortal souls, right? Right. 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 Whereas right. these these people, um, because of the 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 state and the religion being one and the same, mm-hmm. um, are worried about their mortal souls. So they need something to be like a replacement.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like,
0: and so in like uh, 1833 is the first like official mention of the penitentes, hmm. um, and apparently this order was created as a response to that lack. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. That's good stuff.
1: Huh. I like that. Yeah, so, yeah. it's been a long time since I, since I read about this extensively and everything. About it. Yeah, that sounds totally right. And the thing is, you know, it's...
0: Yeah. So, first of all, they're, they're, a, they're a non-official Catholic group.
1: Yeah, not officially approved by the church.
0: Right. And then, at some point, they start enacting these rites that are um, a little kind of rough for people mm-hmm. of modern yeah. sensibilities to, to yeah. understand, right? Or Western or right. sensibilities, I'm not really sure. Sure, yeah. And it
1: must have been at an early point because these groups that are as far away as the Philippines are doing very similar things. That's true. That was you interesting. I my, my older brother used to live in Saipan, uh, which is in the Marianas Islands, and they did stuff really similar to that. I went up to the top of the highest mountain on the island there once visiting, and uh, and there were crosses there that had like you know, dark stains on them and things. I mean, it right, was just,
0: right. whoa, what's going on here? And there have been and groups it, yeah. throughout history of yeah. the Catholic church that have yeah. mortified the flesh, right? right, right, like right. where right. they, uh, they whip each other, they whip themselves, wear hair shirts. Like yeah. There's a precedent yeah. for yeah, that. Yeah,
1: that's in, literally in the Old Testament. I mean, right, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. So you know, it's not, right,
0: you know, coming but, out of nowhere. Right.
1: This stuff was going on in like 1300s Italy and stuff too. Yeah. I also want to say that every time in one of the piece I just read that it, Something that the groups are called, called primitive or their practices or anything, right. those are all in quotes from Carl Taylor. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's good to know. Yeah, because I, yeah. I feel like... Um, you know, I, not, I don't really. That's all. That stuff's relative, you know, and uh, yeah, we, and we don't want to, you know, insult people that are from, you know, less, you know, countries at different stages of development, than, right? You know, or you know, whatever. But I also think like that kind of religion kind of makes sense when you think about the West and how it used to be. I mean, it just, I mean. You read like Blood Meridian or something like that, and, just, and you know, and think about like what what it must have been like it's in, the, harsh, in the late eighteen hundreds,
0: even in the early nineteen hundreds. You know, uh, this folk Catholic sect sprang up, right, as a response to the lack of any official Catholic leadership, right, in a pretty harsh environment, right, right, with a lot of uh, I don't know, a lot of uh, scary <laughs> scary yeah, yeah. things in the world all yeah, around, yeah. you know. Environmentally and whatnot. It's crazy.
1: Um, no, it, it kind of like kind of seems right. I don't know. Whenever I think of like robed priests off in the desert yeah. doing mystical stuff, I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of what you should do with the desert, you well, know. And I
0: also <laughs> feel like it's important to to know that mm-hmm. this organization was mm-hmm. in its it, its in its origin and and what it did was mostly for the good of a community. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, even though like. To, some weird elements, but yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. like Carl Taylor, right, right? You go and you see a human skull on the mm-hmm. the morada or whatever. Yeah, you see these guys whipping themselves. Um, you you think, oh god, yeah, this is a freaky, dangerous. You know, they're all in black robes yeah. and everything. But what they were there for was to preserve, uh, preserve tradition, mm-hmm. and so okay, so that's a, they they were first mentioned in 19, in eighteen thirty three. By an archbishop who was touring through New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and they were they were mentioned as something that needed to be condemned, something that needed to be stamped out, Um, because he was freaked out by it too. But I think it's really important to note that he saw all this going on, Mm -hmm. and then basically he just left New Mexico Mm. and didn't, you know, there was there wasn't any kind of Catholic infrastructure to. To change what was happening, so they continued to kind of like grow and flourish throughout the 19th century, um, and then I think they were supposed to have been at their strongest at like 1880 or something is that, is like that. Right, that. Huh? Like that—that that was like when they were reaching their height. You know, so it's, it's fairly recent. You know, it's not like there's some organization from the depths of time or yeah, anything yeah. like this. This, this was they and I almost wonder if if maybe they didn't get sort of extra entrenched in their traditions Mm. as a result of the clash between the Americans coming in. Right, right. um, Saying, okay, this is New Mexico's, is our land, we're going to figure out how to get everyone assimilated, Mm -hmm. you know, and in these little, these villages up in northern New Mexico, which is where the the penitentes mostly were, if they weren't sort of doubling down and saying, no, this is our culture, we're going to like preserve it, we're going to preserve these aspects of it. which of course became very like right. exciting for someone like Carl Taylor, right? Yeah, yeah, and for the guy who runs, uh, yeah, Today Magazine, or, yeah, know. yeah, right. Yeah. He's like reading yeah. about this group. I mean, that's that's gold, right? Oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it
1: is, and it's so it it's like it's an inherently sensational. Oh, my pants are ripping. What am uh, It's like yeah, it's an inherently sensational. Um, Topic. I mean, right. people whipping themselves and marching yeah. from crosses to cr- cross to cross and beating up anybody that crosses their paths, you know, like yeah. wearing secret robes in the desert and just all this craziness. It's like, it's super interesting. It you know, is, and you yeah. can see it. And who knows, man, maybe he had like some weird kinks or something. If you look up the movie that was later based on <laughs> about this story, which we'll, well, I'm sure we'll get into later, The Last of the Penitentes, um, it's like its biggest presence on the internet is like on websites that compile like... <laughs> Movies that have whipping in them—it's—it's it's salacious, right? Like yeah, it's something
0: that uh, you know—it's like to yeah. a culture that um, kind of suppresses, like, yeah. I don't know that kind of mortification, or right? Whatever, right, that, that becomes very alluring,
1: you yeah. Know? Huh. You know, something I do want to talk about—that biography of Carl Taylor. You maybe listeners from the previous episode of this podcast might notice yeah. that it doesn't mention anything about. Him dating uh, Cliffy. Cliffy from the yeah. pre- from whose ghost allegedly haunts the press club, <laughs> or getting money from her and you know yeah. like getting a check from yeah. her and then giving paying her back with a check that bounced or any of this. Where does that story fit into this? I never I had never heard her story yeah. when I was writing all this. stuff. He
0: supposedly lived with her. For yeah, a while there. so
1: maybe he was still he didn't divorce till 1933. So maybe it was during his separation. It was
0: or uh, yeah. They were living in sin. Yeah. yeah.
1: Crazy man. I think there's another element. I would not be surprised to find out that Carl Taylor was, like, kind of a sick freak or something. I mean, it's kind of weird. Who goes to the Philippines and gets used to, like, having young boys in his employment (laughs) and then comes back and, like, employs a young boy in New Mexico? Well, it's
0: interesting that he seems to be uh, drawn to mm -hmm. places that are kind of on the the fringe of mainstream America, but, like, connected to it, you know? The Philippines was a protectorate.
1: Right, right, right. At that time. Oh, that's true. New Mexico was kind of wild.
0: What was that (laughs) story about Roland C...
1: Oh, the um, filmmaker. The filmmaker. Uh, so supposedly, you know, intercut. You you watched the last of the Pintades yeah. yeah. in nineteen thirty seven. There's a movie that get that gets made that that got made about about uh, the story, and it's very sensationalized and highly inaccurate. Yeah. And the only copy that I've ever been able to find of it is really edited by censors mm-hmm. after it came out. It's like a half an hour long now. Who knows what yeah. they cut out? Apparently, some topless whipping scenes I and mean, crucifixion <laughs> scenes w- involving Carl Taylor's girlfriend, who didn't even exist in real life, as far as we know um and uh, uh so anyway um what, what was he
0: saying oh we're talking about the filmmaker oh yeah yeah, roland, oh, yeah, yeah. Was shot so at.
1: intercut with that movie is real footage of penitentes and just local stuff in truchas they have matachines dances yeah matachines uh, dances things that like yeah. you, you could film just if you went to the church or whatever and that yeah. that frankly that's some of the best stuff in the movie it's, yeah, so, it's so interesting to see but apparently yeah. when roland price was filming that stuff and roland price was the noted filmmaker of such movies as Child Bride of the Ozarks <laughs> which is like famous for having like a long way too long scene of like a ten year old girl taking a long naked yes. bath in a pond and I mean
0: Marijuana the Devil's Weed oh did that, he do that one I really that one funny yeah.
1: funny yeah so he was not like what you would call like a high quality director I mean he was yeah, this, dude, is a, uh, this is like a this a, is a
0: documentary filmmaking at its. no it's this is a B
1: movie but apparently when he was this, he was filming that stuff in Trooch's he got half of his fingers shot off and was wow. yeah and like was really injured doing that I could see that I think like some of that's more just like an old western mentality than, yeah. than penitente you know? and I gotta say
0: like, after seeing the movie that he made yeah I kind of feel like I don't want to trust anything that guy says. oh that's probably know, true I mean, yeah like, maybe he got his fingers shot off like, so like, that's, we'll that's like, how I lost all my fingers also <laughs> <pulls laughs> yeah, ten fingers <laughs> um
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah.
0: Carl Taylor was investigating the, uh, the yeah. penitentes, yeah. and had apparently gained access to one of the Moradas,
1: Right, the one right by his What's cattle? a Morada? A Morada is basically a little chapel for the penitentes. Okay, it's, so it's, it's like a small chapel. Yeah. There's a photo uh, in a little book called Towns of the Sandia Mountains by Mike Smith of the Morada in San Antonio. It was the, best,
0: big... the best thing is Mike just held up the book to the <laughs> microphone so that if you were looking through That's how the microphones, microphones work, there. right? They're like cameras?
1: They, they, uh, <laughs> like cameras for your voice. Um, the, uh, I don't know, somewhere in this book, there is a picture of the San Antonio Murata. I thought there was, maybe I didn't include, oh, there it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was it. Right oh, there. okay. So there's a microphone. Look at that. <laughs> and, and uh, we'll so, put this on the
0: so Facebook page. So, so yeah. Right?
1: And it, this is March, 1940 on the cover of New Mexico magazine. And, um. Uh, so Murata, you know, a little little stone a little chapel, chapel. Little Adobe Chapel. Specifically for the yeah. Penitentes. Yeah.
0: And it has their implements yeah. in it. And had right? an altar
1: with a skull on it. I've actually heard the story of whose skull that is and how it was dug oh, up really? and placed in there and stuff. It was like it was just somebody who like wanted to dig up his great grandfather from the local cemetery and, and it was bring fun. it into yeah. the
0: this is the specific yeah. Murata yeah, of yeah. San Antonio. Yeah. Yeah, and, okay. And uh, you know,
1: like I was like, why did they do that? And he's like, Oh, you could do anything back then. <laughs> Well, okay. I was over
0: at an antique shop on uh, Central the other day, yeah. and had three human skulls for sale. So they're not that hard wow. to come by. <laughs> like weird. They're expensive though. Weird. Oh man, I, that's a strange
1: thing to have in your house. But, but um, <laughs> so yeah. So and then and the morada was connected to a chain of crosses that were the stations of the cross, like okay. in a Catholic church. Yeah. And um, you know, the penitente's ritual would involve walking in this path and connecting mm-hmm. all the crosses and whipping themselves as they went. Um,
0: yeah, and you know, that's that was uh. What was your question? I, I don't know at this point. What was a Murata? I think. Yeah. Is what is was a question. Murata? Oh yeah. Although I did want to point out, I wanted to say, um, uh, my wife's boyfriend in high school had mm. he participated in a like a passion play. Oh yeah. Around Easter time, um, which apparently involved him, you know, being tied to a cross. Whoa. Weird. Like yeah. So this isn't like that unusual Strange. even today. Like oh, interesting. I was I was thought as I was reading about uh, Carl Taylor and yeah. um, about the penitentes. You know, it's often put like, and they would even strap themselves to the crosses. Mm-hmm. And who I, just don't, I just don't think no. it's that big a deal. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, like, I think they were, he was a Lutheran, this, ca- right. this guy guy went to my high school. Oh, this was East Texas. Uh, okay. which, you know, maybe right. they have their own branch of weirdness. Right, right, right.
1: All yeah. right. Really, yeah. Maybe it's like a teenage trend. <laughs>
0: Come on, let's go crucify I mean, I don't them. know that he wasn't whipping himself. Right. Um,
1: that's interesting. Um, do you
0: know, do you know what the, what the idea behind the the whipping was? Like, was there, are you familiar with like, kind of the,
1: I think it had to do with the expiation of your sins through suffering through and, and, and like kind of, I think maybe it had something to do with like trying to understand like what Jesus went through, like, yeah, you know, okay. in the, in the Catholic story. So yeah, I mean, the passion, right? Yeah. You know, just, just to feel that, you know? Um,
0: it's, a lot of this we don't know because this is a, a notoriously secret oh, true. group, yeah, right? Yeah. So we kind of have to piece oh. it together.
1: I, I watched a documentary in one of Marta Weigel's classes mm-hmm. once, um, who's, who's written about this, um, and it was so great. There's this wonderful this guy who wrote this book, uh, Indivina Luz, about um, filming all the, the different Mar- taking photos of all the different. Maradas in New Mexico because mm-hmm. there's still many of them that you can see I went, I visited one in yeah. Cochiti Lake once and it was really neat
0: they've got one in uh, yeah. if you want to go see one there's yeah. one at Los Gondrinos Ranch in oh I went it's to that a... one too
1: I heard a bagpipe performance in that one which was weird <laughs> they did like Scottish songs. It it's small. like a
0: state park or what's something what's going or? on I went yeah. to a
1: renaissance fair there and there were like unicorns and bagpipe music and I was like <laughs> this is not how the penitentes would, would well this. we don't know because it's secret maybe <laughs> yeah, they had the right of the unicorn part of the now for the sacred bagpipe music um but uh oh the, but anyway in this documentary I saw there's this great scene yeah it'd yeah, be great uh, there's this great scene where um thank you uh, where this guy has been beaten up and attacked by a group of masked people outside of Murata, and he's just like I just want to say the penitentes had nothing to do with this, <laughs> this So
0: that was a real thing that happened
1: Yeah oh, Some, like a group jumped him and broke his cameras and <laughs> beat him up <laughs>
0: So I think at the very least, you don't want to go teasing and, the Penitentes And sure. Dude, Ty,
1: when I was writing this, which I, honestly, I got to be honest, I wrote this like a few years ago. Like, this is, <laughs> this is an older piece of mine. Um, when I wrote this, I got a couple of anonymous phone calls just saying, be careful how you write about the Penitentes. Like, and they didn't even have a Morata in Cedar Crest anymore yeah, or in, right, in right, San right. Antonio. I mean, it's just, you know, but I got these weird kind of threatening anonymous phone calls that hung up without saying goodbye. Really and, and where the yeah. people never identified themselves, I mean, I think that there's still a real presence of like people that you know
0: well, I think at least that you know, I mean care about the stuff there was a big morada in, in tome, right, and that's still oh, the site of huh. a major pilgrimage that's to Easter, true, huh? and then if you go to Chimayo around Easter, you see people carrying the crosses on their backs right. and so forth, which is a
1: that's true, certainly a, even if they're
0: not part of an organized that, yeah. penitente yeah group, I think that at least the same sentiments are there yeah right right. oh man should well, we do so another one uh, yeah okay so right. let's, uh, let's see So we're about halfway through we've been learning about uh, Carl Taylor's investigation of the penitentes mm-hmm. and some some creepy things that started happening sure. and, and he seemed convinced that what he was doing was potentially dangerous could yeah. lead him in a lot of trouble right okay so that's the end of part one of the murder of Carl Taylor we're ending on a cliffhanger we are. Did the Penitentes kill Carl Taylor?
1: Well <laughs> Well. You could go on the internet
0: and find out. Or you could wait until <laughs> or you next could week. Wait one week <laughs> and listen to <laughs> your favorite your favorite podcasters. Yes. Deliver the answer to you in a uh, Or you could do both do a little word. research yeah. and
1: then check in with us next week. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it'll be fun. Okay,
0: cool. So yeah. well thanks for listening. Yes.
1: Uh let's see. We wanna say uh, let's see. Should we say some basic things about this episode? This okay. Episode's music comes from Tim Howard. Okay. Uh, Tim Howard, who later became Soltero. Check out uh, Soltero's music online. Um, the uh, the episode was made by Mike Smith and Ty Bannerman. Ty Bannerman and Mike Smith, I should say. This and guy's involved. Mike a lot. Smith
0: and Ty Bannerman. Yes. Also, yes. they were involved. Yes. And
1: yeah. uh, and it was definitely produced by Ty Bannerman, who's done a lot of great editing on. I did the
0: sound effects for this
1: stuff and sound effects. Yeah, definitely produced by that guy. He is the Ira Glass of this. <laughs> All right.
0: I certainly smacked my lips enough. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. for Ira Glass. Act ten. The podcast's over.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, check back in about a week. Um, we've got the we got most of this one already recorded, uh, and then after that, we're going to talk about uh, preppers. So keep oh, yeah. checking back, and we'll um, we'll have this ready to go. And if you download this or subscribe to it on iTunes, you can get it on your uh, on your on your iPod or your phone automatically. Yeah. Write us a review on
1: iTunes if you want. I hear that's something that people do. I listen to a lot of podcasts where people urge that, so I'm just going to say
0: that. Also, maybe if you see one of us on the street, just give us some money. Just like yeah. hand us like $50. Like $100. Or $100. Like $1,000. I think so. Just hand us $1,000 like, and say, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Guys, I like you. Yeah. All right. And don't tell Ty that you gave me that one. <laughs> no wait. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> all right. Thank you. See you all next time. Bye.